from Kurtco Media. Coming up on the show. Let's see what interests you. Do you want to go and meet the Pokot tribe, one of the last pastoral tribes left in Kenya? We can fly you in there in a helicopter. You can't access it by road or plane, but we can get you in there. Or go up to the Saguta Desert, go up to Uganda and go and see Lake Turkana on the border. Those are places that will blow your mind when you see the scenery. That's safari expert Deborah Kalmeyer. I'm Bruce Wallen, and this is Travel That Matters. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Travel That Matters. This is the podcast where we explore the world's most exceptional and meaningful travel experiences, and we meet some of the fascinating people who make them possible. Today's guest is absolutely that. She's a truly inspiring person who puts together incredible experiences for travelers, including what she calls the greatest safari on earth. Her name is Deborah Kalmeyer, and she's the founder of Roar Africa. Now, Roar Africa specializes in these intricately planned private safaris that explore everything from the classic destinations like the Maasai Mara and Kruger National Park to more insider spots like Mana Pools in Zimbabwe and Lake Turkana on the Kenya-Uganda border. Wherever they go, these trips are top top tier in terms of you know the luxury camps and villas and all the extra perks like private guides and helicopters but they also go beyond the notion of safari as strictly a wildlife experience they incorporate art design fashion cultural elements that deborah calls africa's other big five particularly of interest to deborah is the issue of women's rights in Africa. And we're going to hear from her about Roar Africa's extremely cool and brand new women's empowerment trips. Not surprisingly, Deborah also has some very, very interesting stories of her own from a childhood growing up on a farm in what is now Zimbabwe and from her many experiences on safari in the African bush. But she tells them much, much better than I do. So let's get to it with Roar Africa's Deborah Kalmai. Deborah, thank you so much for joining us today on Travel That Matters. Very, very happy to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Bruce. Delighted to be here. So before we get into all these fascinating safaris and, and destinations and everything like that, I have to ask you, you grew up in Zimbabwe, or what is, what is now called Zimbabwe, but you grew up a, a little bit different than most people did. You actually had a, a lion in your house and a hyena in your backyard, I understand. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Can you explain to us what that was like or why and, and what that was like? Yes, of course. So, well, I was the least likely lion dinner because I was 12 years old at the time and I had four siblings that were younger than me. <laughs> but it's possibly where my love for the wild began as well. My dad rescued this lioness. We were living on a farm in Zimbabwe and she became part of our family. She was tiny, uh, three months old when we got her. And honestly, she thought she was a Labrador <laughs> because she grew up without two black labs and tore around the house and came and picked me up from school in the back of the station wagon. 
Yeah, it was uh, fabulous. My horses went completely nuts. They were very difficult to ride. Staff in the house were terrified. Our visitors often arrived and left immediately, first thinking she was a sculpture. And then as she trotted down the stairs and came up to their car, they would jump back in and leave. <laughs> and then the hyena was a very brief stint. It sort of hung out at the swimming pool with an otter and uh, did lots of somersaults and made sure our swimming pool was constantly green. So for me, it's always been a treat when I see even now blue swimming pools are like a luxury. <laughs> no hyenas and no otters in the, in the swimming pool, no. and that is a luxury. Very, very good. Well, that childhood clearly must have shaped you. I mean, I, you know, that is not something that most of us can, can relate to, but I think we can appreciate it. And, and tell us how you go from there, how you go from, you know, having a lion in your house, a hyena in the backyard, an otter in your backyard, fast forward several years, and you're leading Robert Redford on safari. How do, how do we get from there to there? You leave Zimbabwe, go to university in South Africa, <laughs> take okay. a job in New York because you've watched too many episodes of Friends and you think that that's how living in New York looks and feels. It doesn't? And <laughs> no, not so much. <laughs> You know, I think what you realize when you grow up in the bush is you are witnessing a real life in its sort of rawest essence, right? And and I started to feel incredibly homesick and also incredibly grateful for the way I'd grown up. You know, I watched that lioness hunting. I watched her playing. I watched her falling in love with my dad. And they're so similar to us animals. And I feel like, you know, we're so disconnected. We don't really realize how similar we are. And that just became more and more profound for me, living in New York and being so far from what was so much a part of me. And so my dad is a 65-year-old white male didn't find employment in South Africa very easily. And he's loads of enthusiasm, well, you can imagine the kind of crazy man he is because he <laughs> had a lioness in his house with his four young children. Um, he was constantly asking me for ideas and what to do and, and, and ways to make money, really. People would hear my accent and they knew I wasn't from Brooklyn. <laughs> so they would say, I want to go to Africa. Can you help me? I, can you look at my itinerary? And so I said to my dad, go get your guiding license. Let's, let's do this. You know, wildlife inside out. You can give them an experience as an African, as authentically as, as we know it and love it. So that was how Raw Africa started. It was really a pet project sort of to keep my dad entertained. I'm not from the travel industry. I didn't have any experience. And in that sort of naivety, all sorts of great things really happened. It sort of went against all sort of MBA business school plans of, you know, <laughs> assessing whether a business is viable or not. It was based on love and it was based on trying to help my father. So what started with four little trips in our first year in 2005 grew and grew. And I started to find amazing people that were huge advocates for the wild and wildlife. And one of those was a lady by the name of Pat Mitchell, who is the chair of Sundance Film Festivals. Hence, Robert Redford wanted to come back to Africa. And I was privileged enough to be able to design that trip for him and Billy, his wife, and he came out here, and this was the first time he returned, having filmed that incredible movie out of Africa, which has been, you know, the source of so much tourism and so much inspiration for so many people. Uh, it's amazing, you know, the power of storytelling and film and, and what that can do. 
I think so many of us, you know, associate Africa with that movie for, you know, for better or worse. But I think that that's the picture of Africa that we have in our minds before we go and even even still after we go. And, and what does a trip like that look like, though? Bringing Robert, I mean, <laughs> clearly there's a little pressure bringing someone like Robert Redford back to Africa after this definitive movie. But w- where do you take him? What happens on that trip? Yeah, so we brought him to Cape Town. He stayed at Element House. He enjoyed the beautiful ocean and mountain and the fabulousness of what is here in Cape Town. I think it's a city that many people are very surprised by, the food, the culture, the art, the architecture. I mean, there's just so much here to be enjoyed. This Mediterranean climate, incredible beauty, great weather. Everyone speaks English. It's very warm and welcoming, and your level of hospitality is incredibly high. Um, So that was where we started and from there went on to safari um, in the Sabi Sands of South Africa and then on to Botswana. So what was the moment on that trip? So, okay, in the movie, the I think the moment that so many of us remember is when, you know, he's flying Meryl Streep over the savannah in Kenya and it's just such a magical scene and moment in, in movie history. What was the moment on that trip for him and his wife? I think the moment was they sat in the Land Rover in Botswana waiting for a leopard to come down and make a kill. And I I think all Bob's patience was exercised, sitting, breathing (laughs) in the beautiful air, watching the African savannah, wondering when on earth something was going to happen. And that leopard came down and grabbed an impala and he got to witness a kill. And, you know, Gruesome as that may be, that's part of nature, and it's something you so seldom see. Do you know, in my whole life of going on safari, I've never, ever seen a kill. Never any kill? Never. I've been there after a kill, and I've never seen a kill. And, I mean, that's, you know, 48 years of going on safari. I I realized it was rare, but I did not realize it was that rare that you have never seen a kill. And and what kind of weight, you know, I I do feel like that patience, as, as much as it may have been difficult for him at the time, that waiting and then the payoff when you have waited, when you have worked for it a little bit, is more rewarding, you know? Like if he just pulls up in his first safari and sees a leopard jump out of a tree and, and eat an Apollo, it's like, oh, great, I guess everybody sees that. But I, I think you gain an appreciation. You definitely do. And, you know, I think our clients are incredibly lucky. They're going to some of the very best places that have been handpicked, vetted for them, that they're with some of the best guides in the world that understand animal behavior, that can predict movement, that can see things way, way before. It's a whole other language, you know, that they are anticipating. And people get to see remarkable stuff. And I don't know if everyone realizes sometimes just how lucky that is. My husband was 42 before he saw his first leopard. And that's because these places are not always accessible to us as as sort of local Africans. And guests come, they pay premium dollar, but they're certainly seeing some of the most extraordinary experiences available. Okay, so those types of experiences, moments, the the leopard was a moment for Robert Redford, right? What about you? You've been on countless safaris. I'm sure you've had a million moments, but is there one in particular? It could be good, good or bad, one moment that stands out. Actually, was attacked. Well, I didn't get eaten, thank God, obviously. But I was at a camp in Botswana, one of the Jubez camps, and it was dusk. We'd been out watching this pack of wild dogs, and you know, wild dogs are pretty precious to see in the in the, in the wild. It's not every day, and we'd watched them hunting and sort of forming their plan. And they're the most efficient hunters in the bush. 
And then they ran off and it was getting dark. So we decided gin and tonics were far more of a priority and dashed back to camp. And it wasn't quite dark yet. So I thought, I'll just go back to my tent quickly. And so I was walking along and you know, this all happened, it feels like, in slow motion. But I heard this scuffling in the bush just behind me. And I turned around and this impala was running at lightning speed right towards me. But what was more terrifying were the 16 pairs of ears bouncing through the grass behind it at lightning speed. The impala brushed my shoulder literally hit me and ran past. And in that moment, I realized the wild dogs were now chasing that impala and I was the sitting duck and I was going to be a far easier meat than the impala that had run past. And I could see the guides and the staff and the lodge staring at me. It was There was nothing anyone could do. I grabbed my neck. <laughs> what that was going to do, I don't know, but I was screaming blue murder thinking, do wild dogs eat people? <laughs> and I couldn't get the answer. And these dogs raced around me, straight past me, didn't even see me. And they killed that impala about 10 feet behind me, boof, onto the ground. And I had such a brilliant guide, Humphrey, who, who works with me, Humphrey Gumpo. He, he, in his wisdom, ran at me, put a camera in my hand and said, film this film this. And it was so extraordinary to see how my shock and terror was managed by my brain having to focus on something else. And now, I mean, pretty gruesome, but I was watching 16 wild dogs inhale an impala 10 feet in front of me. That could have been me. <laughs> but, you know, it was one of the most terrified moments of my life. It remains one of the most extraordinary stories of my life and experiences. But to be in the hands of somebody so qualified and with such integrity who could handle and manage me in that moment really gave me an appreciation for what that guide's role is, right? Because those people are psychiatrists, really. They're reading the bush, they're reading animals' body languages, and then they're having to deal with the crazy humans, right, who don't always listen to the rules. I had listened to the rules. It wasn't dark. I wasn't walking in the dark. But, you know, he really had the foresight to transform me in a moment that could have really been horrible for me. It wasn't. It was magical and amazing, and, and I appreciate it. But I, I, I appreciate Humphrey every day of my life for that moment. So, by the way, you said you hadn't seen a kill. You, you were almost a kill, and you've seen an impala <laughs> you know, get impaled. Right. But you, yeah. you don't think of it as a kill, but that's exactly yeah. what you do. No, because you I was were, part of it. I was in it. <laughs> I wasn't in the Land Rover watching it as a spectator. I, I think that I think you've seen a kill just about as more detailed as, as any safari goer. So, all right, I'll change that line. <laughs> okay. Yes. Deborah has lived a more interesting life than most of us have. And she draws upon those experiences and her deep ties to Africa on every safari that she puts together for her clients. However, there is one trip that she thinks goes above and beyond them all. She calls it the greatest safari on earth. And so I had to ask her, why? Yeah, sometimes I ask myself that. Why did I title it that? 
<laughs> you asked you for can, it. Yeah, I certainly did. And certainly delivering that in the pandemic this year was the moment I really asked myself, why did I call it that? But I called it that because as an African, Americans work so hard and they take so little vacation. And so often I get asked, Deborah, I want to do all of Africa. I just want to do it once. How do I do it? And for 15 years, I've kind of been pulling my hair out, thinking, how do I slow everybody down? <laughs> how do we take longer vacations? How do we stay longer, absorb more, and not be in too much of a rush? But when I was flying from uh, New York to Dubai, I met the captain of an A380, Zimbabwean, and he taught me about this very beautiful Emirates executive private jet it's built for 124 passengers. It's an A319, but this has been specifically kitted out for just 10 guests, so sort of bigger than first-class cabins, beautiful dining area, bar, two beautiful spa bathrooms. And I thought to myself, wow, now maybe, just maybe, if we use this aircraft, how do I do all of Africa in one go? And I thought about it and I thought, you know, if I had limited time, what would be my choice as an African? What would I want to see? Victoria Falls, one of the seven natural wonders of the world. Absolutely. My home country, Zimbabwe. The Okavango Delta, some of the most unique, extraordinary landscape where all this rainwater from Angola comes down and floods out into a delta, never reaching the sea, causing this huge concentration of wildlife into a reasonably small area, but so unique the Great Migration, the greatest wildlife show on earth in Kenya, and then the mountain gorillas of Rwanda. And that to me, I'm like, wow, those are the four most iconic experiences in sub-Saharan Africa. How can I fit that in if I use this plane? And we managed to design this experience to be 12 days, and that was the greatest safari on earth, that if we could pull this off, we would do it. And so you did did your first one, is that right? And then you're going to, you're, you're, the plan is to repeat this, yes? Yeah, so it's an annual trip. It's only once a year because those are the absolute peak times to have those experiences and be in those countries. You know, we want to witness a, a river crossing with the migration. That's only going to happen in Kenya in August. The gorillas, it's easy to trek at that time of year. The falls are in full flood. We can see beautiful falls. And the delta is also, uh, that's the peak season. So... Yeah, it was, a, it was a huge success and it was really the Olympic torch for African tourism after a decimated sort of 18 months here. That, I mean, that is quite a, quite a way to welcome back tourism in many of the, these places. But it's also, I feel like that's the kind of trip where they, they say it's a once in a life. They say they're going to go to Africa once, but then you take them on a trip like that and they are going to come back. There's no way you can not want to come back to Africa after that, right? Yeah, I mean, if I'm doing my job properly on any of these trips, be it the greatest safari on earth or any of them, it is to move people, right? It is to, to crack their hearts open, to get them engaged, to really care about conservation, to see the beauty that is left and how important it is to preserve this. And I see people find themselves, you know, I see them find each other. There are emails that bring me to tears from people coming back to trip from trips saying, you changed my life. I see the world differently. And that's the job. You know, it's not about bringing masses of people. It's about bringing the right people who will do the right thing. We're going to take a quick break, but stick around for my wrap up because I've got another crazy safari kill story for you. And, of course, we've got more great conversation with safari expert Deborah Kalmeyer. 
You mentioned Victoria Falls, Rwanda gorillas, which is probably not a first-time trip for most people, admittedly. Masai Mara, or the Serengeti, one or the other in, for the migration, and then the Okavango Delta in Botswana. Those are kind of classic, not just first-time destinations, but classic safari Africa destinations. What do you recommend for someone who has done those? So let's say you've done those four iconic experiences. What's next? You know, I think in, in a lot of these countries, there are always layers, aren't there, right? You can go deeper and deeper. Our first time, I would say South Africa or Kenya are great options, right? But then you can peel that back further. Go to Zimbabwe, go to Mana Pools, go up onto the Zambezi, go to Chirundu, go to places that are not on the regular travel map, that don't have the big resorts. You can still do them extremely comfortably. And there are amazing camps like Chiquenya up at Mana Pools. That's an exceptionally beautiful area that people don't know about. And then Botswana, you know, perhaps you want to go up into the Makhadi and go and experience the salt pans and be out there and sleep out under the stars and have a totally adrenaline-pumped experience. So there's so much for everyone, which is why we work like architects, because it needs to be curated for you. You don't have to be pigeonholed into, you know, here's your 10-day trip, South Africa, Victoria Falls, Botswana. Let's let's see what interests you. Do you want to go and meet the Pokot tribe, one of the last pastoral tribes left in Kenya? We can fly you in there in a helicopter. You can't access it by road or plane, but we can get you in there. Or go up to the Saguta Desert, go up to Uganda and go and see Lake Turkana on the border. Those are places that will blow your mind when you see the scenery. And you don't necessarily have to rough it, right? You can take a helicopter. We do heli safaris in there. And you can go and stay at Segera and have a beautiful, luxurious room and great food and hot bath and spa, but still have all that adventure. I mean, you just rattled off so many amazing sounding places, many of which I've never even heard of. So I am excited to read our show notes once those are available and start researching all of those places. That sounds fantastic. And I love that for people who don't have time to get it wrong. And this is this is the way you do it. And and really, that is that is the truth. It is a big trip from the US. It's a big trip. And there's a lot of logistical issues of, you know, getting from one place to the other. So like, the time that you have on safari, the time that you have to enjoy the destinations that you're in, they, it has to be just right. It has to be magical. Let me ask you this on the classic safaris. What do you think the things that, you know, again, we've talked about Westerners having this perspective of out of Africa being Africa or going to the, all the iconic destinations and leaving it at that. What do you think most Westerners overlook when they go to Africa? I think that they don't realize necessarily the history, the culture. There's, there's something I'd like to talk about called the other big five, right? Because so much has been focused on centering sort of Africa as one, a safari destination. You go to Africa for safari, end. You go to see the big five, end. Okay, so I like to talk about the other big five. And that by that, I mean the art, the culture, the design, the food, the fashion. There's so much. And I think that that's where people get really surprised. And I see that particularly in Kigali in Rwanda, and in Cape Town in South Africa, they are blown away by the food and the art and the museums and taking them into the archives in Parliament and seeing drawings from the 1500s when the Dutch settlers arrived here. I mean, that's not something that most people have on their agenda when they're coming to Cape Town. They sort of come to Cape Town as an afterthought after safari. So if there wasn't safari, would they come to Cape Town? 
They should. Do you know how hard it is for me to sell the Winelands? It's so difficult. And people say to me. That should not be hard. I that know, not but be hard they'll to say, oh, I've been to Napa and I've been to Tuscany. And I'm like, okay, those are beautiful places. This is jaw-dropping scenery that will absolutely blow your mind. The farm-to-table food, organic, amazing, the settings. I was just out in the Winelands on Sunday. I mean, it's probably my hundredth time. And I just sat there going, wow. Wow, this place is insane. It's so beautiful. And the food I ate was as good as anywhere in the world. And then, of course, there's the wine and they're beautiful places to stay. But it's such a world-class experience. And it's every client that I get to go there says to me, thank heavens we listened to you. I wish we'd stayed longer. There's that element everywhere. I think the important thing is to consider the safety because that's the number one thing with Africa. It is not a destination place that you just assume. Let's go to downtown Johannesburg because we think it's cool and hip. No, it's not cool and hip. It's not safe. You can't do that. If anything, do that with a local South African guide that can read the landscape, just like we were saying, you know, the guides in the bush can read the language of the bush. You need to read the language of the destination. Cities like Kigali, safe. Nairobi, not so safe. If the African city destinations are limited in terms of the appeal, A, for, for a one or two time tourist, and B, the, the safety, as you mentioned. So, so how do you bring in that cultural component from these cities into your travel experiences? You know, there are also ways of doing this. For example, we do a, a women's empowerment trip once a year. And that is all about bringing people who are working in film, in music, in art, in conservation, whatever they're doing, giving them a platform to share their story and their, you know, their whole life plan, really. It's a little bit like Ted Woman Goes on Safari, if, if you will, but it's a great opportunity for local people to have a chance to share what their work is. Explain that to a dead woman on, on safari. I like that concept. But it, it, first of all, how did you come up with this idea for the women's empowerment safaris? And, and then what do they exactly entail? Are they individual trips that you've done and, or, or their groups? And how, how is that working going forward? So Raw Africa's vision statement, my vision statement is, if African women rise, wildlife will thrive. And my belief is that tourism is a natural fit for women. We're caregivers, and this is the place for us to work. Unfortunately, it's been a very male-dominated industry, very tough for women to get out of reservations or housekeeping into some of the more senior visible jobs, hosting, being anti-poachers, being pilots, being guides, all of those totally capable of doing, very hard to access. And one day I was on a runway in Cape Town actually looking for a pilot. And I was about to fly into the Kalahari and I saw this lady and she had her four stripes on her shirt and I said to her, are you the pilot? And she said, yes, I am. I was like, and where's the other one? <laughs> she said, she's over there. And I was like, wow, I love it. And this is such a technical aircraft. It was a PC-12, which is a pretty sexy aircraft to land on gravel strips in the bush. And I was like, oh, my goodness, we're going to do this. We are going to do a woman's empowerment trip once a year. We're going to find a lodge to partner with. We're going to staff it with women. And we're going to show that, you know, women can do this. They can fly these planes. They can guide these trips. They can track these animals. They can be the anti-poachers. They can be the sommeliers. They can be the hosts. Let's do it. And it was those two ladies that inspired the whole creation. And then, as I mentioned earlier, Pat Mitchell, who is actually the founder of TED Woman, is, is a Raw Africa board member. 
together. And her and I came together and decided that this was the way to start a movement, to pioneer changing this very male-dominated industry. Not to say we don't want men working with us. Absolutely, we do. We just wanted to open up a few more career paths and have a little bit of equality in this industry. And the power of perception is so important because... You've got the tribal culture, which is also very male-dominated. And then you've got Western culture, right? And I think one of the most rewarding moments for me was after we did our first trip. We had two male trackers and only one female, because at the time there was only one female qualified. And I'd said to David, one of the other trackers, "Um, David, what do you think? Do you think your daughter could do this job? And he shook his head and said, no, 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 no. And we didn't have much conversation because I couldn't speak his language. And he came to me at the end and he tapped me on the shoulder and was grinning away. And he's like, Deborah, yes, my daughter, she can do this. And, you know, it just, I just wanted to cry and hug him. I was so happy. And I was like, wow, you know, it makes so much difference that your daughter could now actually stay in her place of birth, in the environment she knows, track animals, do something she loves and that's so innate to her, versus trek six hours to the nearest city and become a dentist or hairdresser or whatever it might be. And it was, and it's moments like that that you really realize the power of this work and the power of travel. And so many good things have come out of those trips. So we do them once a year. We try and do it in a different country. We just did one in Kenya this March. The next one is in February in Rwanda. So tell us about that. Rwanda, a women's empowerment trip in Rwanda. How is it different than not a women's empowerment trip? You know, aside from the fact that it's staffed by, by women, like what is the culture like on this trip? What is the experience like as a group? So it is a group and it's a group of foreign women. They can come from anywhere in the world. How many people? Uh, 14. So we take an entire lodge. The great thing about this one is it's at Singita Kwatonda. Um, up at Volcanoes National Park, that lodge has a female had a female architect design it, a female interior designer, and is run by the first female GM in Rwanda. So there is a very feminine energy there before we even start, and it's something I've never experienced anywhere else in Africa, any lodge. There's something there that is just so special and so, so empowering. It's almost like those five volcanoes that are slap-bang in front of you are kind of funneling this power into you as, as a woman, or that's how I've experienced it. And I keep on saying it's so spiritual and it's so special and it sounds really hokey, but it's not when you're there. I know you'll know what I talk, I'm talking about. <laughs> so we've got some incredible speakers. We've got the, the CEO of Rwanda Air. She's a female. The former Minister of Health, female. So 63% of the Rwandan government is female. You know, that speaks to a lot of how that country is run today and how remarkable it is. And so very privileged to, to have her. The head of tourism is also female. And then we have Corey Knight, who's based in San Francisco, and she's one of the co-founders of Wild Aid, one of the big organizations that I support. And Corey's just a huge fundraiser and has done so much for Africa. So we're thrilled to have her. The other speaker is a lady from South Africa called Claire Bradbury, who just wrote a book called Dwell Being, all about how to bring the wild into the city, into city life and, and sort of stay more connected. On that trip, clearly, there must be this incredible bonding. I mean, that's a big part of travel anyways, right? It's the bonding. It's the bonding with your friends and family. It's the bonding with, with people you meet along the way. It's the bonding with your guide, whoever it is. But I'd imagine like on these women's empowerment trips, 
there must just be an incredible lifelong bond that forms in a lot of these cases. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right, Bruce. You know, and the longer I do this work, the more I see this alchemy that comes from travel. It's like it speeds up friendships from zero to 100 in no other way, right? There's no other way that you come away that close and that bonded. And it's for life. You know, these people that were on this greatest safari with me, they're like my best friends, you know. And I'm like, I I mean, how did I get that lucky that I got these 10 new friends that are this close to me? And it's the experience, right? And the weaving it together. And as you say, the guides, the people you meet along the way, which is why I feel like it's such an art form designing these trips. The women's empowerment things have been amazing. I mean, the WhatsApp groups just buzz every day. It's like 15, 16 messages. And I know the women all talking and supporting and, you know, conversations are developing. Businesses are developing. Books are being written. Films are being produced. And you sort of sit back and be like, wow, like that all came from travel. You know, that's amazing. <laughs> that is amazing. That's something that we don't think about. You know, books are made, but movies are, but businesses are started because someone meets someone on safari, on the, great, on the, on the world's greatest safari they meet. So you, you expect something great to come of that. But, but that really is something special. And again, I'm sure on, on, on those types of trips that you do, it must be, you know, pronounced even more than it is on a usual travel experience. You know, I think there's this desire to be out in the wild. I think it's bigger than ever, that appetite for free, fresh, beautiful air, big blue skies, just being out there, right, and putting ourselves out there and and doing those things we always put off and thought, oh, I'll go on safari when my children are older or for my anniversary or whatever. There's an urgency now, and, and I think that's wonderful. I think Africa needs tourism. You know, one in every four jobs is, to, is in tourism. Um, we need people more than ever, and I feel like we're now top of the list. We're attractive. It's a, a definitely a big bucket list, if you want to call it that. But it's, it's, it's a, I know that it's going to be more and give back more than most people expect. And that makes me so excited. Very exciting indeed. Well, let me ask you one last question. All these amazing trips that you set up, this desire to be back in the wild, I'm sure you feel it too, even though it's you know a, a big part of your job. But if you're going on safari, if you're just going on your own or, or with your family, whatever it is, where do you go? <laughs> I go to Zimbabwe because it's where I'm from and I'll never stop loving the people from there. You know, there's a wildness to Zimbabwe. There's a warmth to Zimbabwe. There are people that have suffered enormously. We've lived through wars. We've lived through genocide. We are the best storytellers in the world, and it's always very competitive around a campfire as to who is going to enact that story, not just tell that story. So I always love going back to Zimbabwe, to Mana Pools, to Lake Kariba. I, I learned to ski, water ski there as a little girl and have all these terrible fears of being eaten by a crocodile. And so going back there and being able to... But being able to go back there and remember those childhood dreams and, and, and so much of, you know, where you've been is, is sort of who you are today, right? So it's always special for me to go back to, to the Zimbabwean people who are my people. <laughs> That's beautiful. Someone once told me nothing good ever comes from swimming in Africa. <laughs> you know, whether it's crocs or sharks or hippos, but apparently something good did come from swimming in Africa. You learned to water ski. Well, Deborah, you have led a fascinating life and... 
You have taken people on fascinating journeys. I hope to join you someday on Safari. Thanks so much for joining us and sharing some of these tales. It's such a pleasure, Bruce. I'd love to have you. And now for the Wallen Wrap-Up. What an inspiring person she is. If that does not get you excited about a trip to Africa, I don't know what will. So one interesting thing that Deborah brought up was the issue of seeing a kill on safari. Not of almost, you know, being the kill like her wild dog story, but of actually witnessing a big cat or, or another predator stalk, bring down and devour its prey. This is a common thing for people to want to see on safari. It's it's a it's a powerful moment of, of raw nature. But I, I actually once had a guide in, in Tanzania who told me that everybody comes in wanting to see a kill, but when they actually do, most of them wish that they hadn't seen it. And and I will say, I, I've seen one kill on safari, and it is definitely an experience that leaves a mark. We were in Leowa Plain National Park in, in Zambia, and our guide had spotted this cheetah and her two cubs, and, and he could tell that the, the mother was tracking something. And we couldn't really tell because the, the grass was tall, but we soon learned why. It was this tiny little antelope called an oribi and her, her calf. Oribis are like the size of a small skinny dog and the calves are of course even smaller and and very very cute and and well you can see where this is going but it's actually worse than that that mother cheetah was training her two cubs how to hunt so it all kind of happened fast at first and then didn't happen so fast and basically the mom took off, sent the two orbies sprinting at full speed and pretty much immediately isolated the calf, caught it but then didn't kill it she left that for the two cubs and, and and they of course weren't really fully trained in the ways of hunting. So they didn't know that you're supposed to kill an animal quickly. So it's cries don't attract other predators like lions and hyenas who, who might steal your prey. Anyways, they started playing with this poor baby Orby and, and let's just say it took a long, long time. And all the while the, the calf's mother is, you know, hearing the cries and running back and forth in a panic about 50 yards away. And, and it was just, that was kind of the final straw for us all. I, I was with my, my, my mom, my wife, my kids, and, and my mom just starts sobbing. I mean, I, I think we were, we were all pretty much on, on the verge. It was, it was tough to see, but when it was finally over, the, the cheetah cubs started, you know, they start wrestling and playing like nothing had happened, but there was blood all over their their mouths and chins. And, and here we are looking at some of the cutest animals in the world, these fluffy cheetah cubs. But at that moment, you could really see them for the wild animals that they are. And it, it was a reminder that no matter how refined, no matter how luxurious, the best African safaris are raw. And that's what, you know, that's what makes them one of the most incredible travel experiences you will ever have in your life. We'd like to thank Deborah Kalmeyer for joining us today on Travel That Matters. For more information on Roar Africa and some of the fascinating destinations we talked about today, please check out our show notes or visit kurtco.com backslash travel that matters. This show is produced for Kurtco Media by AJ Mosley. Assistance by Monica Kelly, music by Joey Salvia. I'm Bruce Wallen, and we will see you down the road. 